0: Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. is Luke Mason.
1: And today we'll be doing our part two of Children of Men. Uh, This one will be reflective on the book. And this is something uh, I guess new that we've never done before is really comparing and contrasting uh, the story in the book and the story in the movie. Mm -hmm,
0: Yeah, well, previously all books slash movies were similar enough to be encapsulated in a single episode. And this one, they are very different. (laughs) So we felt they needed their separate episodes. (laughs) Yeah, like, going back to what you said, like, if
1: you look at The Great Gatsby and then you look at the movie The Great Gatsby, like, it's almost identical plot-wise. Yeah. There's there, there's some artistic differences, but...
0: Stylistically, yeah. I think there are
1: some liberties taken, but, yeah, like, fundamentally... But this is, like you said in the last one, this is a very stark difference. Like, yeah,
0: if you were going to make the differences from this story to, like, Great Gatsby, it would be, like, instead of Tom being <laughs> a white supremacist, he's kind of just a... Uh, like I'm kind a, of a morose fellow, <laughs> maybe a Soviet spy or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's yeah, it's set instead of on Long Island, it's set like in Connecticut <laughs> or maybe, Just, or maybe California, uh, <laughs> or yeah. And then it's not the great Gatsby, it's the pretty good Caraway. <laughs> <laughs> this type I of love thing, that, the pretty way. <laughs> oh man, that is good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm sure we mentioned last episode too how the book. Again, because the movie was really popular, and so I'd seen the movie several times, and then I read the book for the first time in preparation for this podcast, and I was blown away at how different it is. It's almost completely different. Like we said last time, the only kind of similarity is the main character and the overarching premise. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so basically in
1: the book, big differences. Julian is the one that's pregnant. She's, dun, not, dun, dun. Uh, she's not a past lover. Of our main character, she is just someone he randomly had a class with at one point, talking about English literature. One of the fish, yeah, she's one of the fish, and the fish are like this tiny little group of malcontents, as opposed to like an active resistance that's being <laughs> mounted.
0: Yeah, they're much less powerful in the book than they seem in the movie.
1: Like uh, they, they are <laughs> their reason for being in the public eye is that they study the
0: Common Book of Prayer in churches, <laughs> like yeah, and Luke in the movie is a kind of a freedom fighter uh, war not warmonger but not really a scared to warmonger like if a, he has a burn to burn it all down if Yes, I have exactly. To, yeah. And in the book he's a like a priest. He's a and <laughs>
1: like a fairly effeminate priest yeah, like with soft, long fingers, soft spoken, like very thoughtful, f- philosophic, right? Uh, in his
0: demeanor. So And um, he dies in the book. Yes. two he's kind of ripped to shreds by the omegas which is another big difference in the book is the omegas are actually really cool in the book it's kind of reversed and the part one of the book is called omega and part two is called alpha yeah <laughs> which is really which is cool just, uh, i'm the alpha the yeah. omega and the Ome- too it's a play on that and-, and in the so in the book it's set in 2021 which means that the last year people were that gave birth was 1995. And so everybody born in 1995 is known as the Omega generation. And they're kind of painted as basically the savages <laughs> of the culture. But, but
1: weirdly, like savages that are, are elevated to a place of almost God-like stature. Like mm-hmm. if you hurt, like if you hurt an Omega, you're done. It's but like bad luck. Kind you, might, of. you might as well give up. Cause like if you commit a crime against an Omega, you're deported. Yeah. There's like a super... there's whole scene with Henry too, mm-hmm, right? Yeah.
0: There's a, a, a kind of a superstition around the omegas that because they're the last year of people born because again if you don't know in children of men the backstory is humans have stopped being able to give birth so there's been what is that 95 so that's 26 years so 26 years of no babies and that's kind of what's happening in this world. And
1: there's even um, kind of in his reflection on all this, the narrator points out that they're a beautiful generation. Like, they're very attractive people. And he's like, it's kind of like Mother Nature was was giving us the middle finger saying, you know, this may be the last, but they'll be...
0: Do they the I can't remember. Beautiful. Is there a line in the book that talks about how one of the reasons this might be is because there's nobody younger to compare yeah, it's them like to? their youth. They're yeah. the only, they're
1: the last <laughs> representation of youth. That would
0: be pretty weird, hey, where... If, like, I guess one of the reasons you notice people age is that there's people who look younger around yeah, because there's you younger kind of people wouldn't, around. You wouldn't notice, we wouldn't the notice the same, that yeah. if there's the young, anyway, yeah, interesting. So anyway, sorry. Continue. So
1: anyway, essentially the other major difference, I'd say the biggest difference is that Theo is very good friends with the warden. Not he, a minister. He's cousins. Cousins, yeah. Like, grew up with him every summer, mm-hmm. hanging out with him, like, best buds-level good friends. And worked with him. And and was his advisor. So they, there's a, a, the first, you know, 50 pages of the book is almost... Primarily describing that relationship and how it impacted Theo. With this guy named Zan. With this guy named Zan, who's who's, who's not just a minister. Yeah. He's, he's like the grand dictator of of the, yeah, the Republic England. former the yeah. country formerly known as the UK, right? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and basically is running this declining society with the level of efficiency that that he has to. And and the the premise here is that he's giving pleasure. And he's giving comfort and security, and that's kind of what he's giving to everybody. Yeah,
0: he's he's promising hedonism and security to and, people as they but, age but out in, of existence. But in light of that,
1: their freedom is very very limited. There's <laughs> you know there's qu- there's quotas on how much gas they can use. Travel permits are necessary. Um, and if you if you really fuck up, then you you're gone. You're on the Isle of Man, right? You just mm-hmm. get, you get sent there to die, and die you will because it because it's, like, the state of nature on the Island of Man. Mm-hmm. So, essentially, this, this relationship that he has with Zan opens up him to Julian approaching him and essentially asking for his help to restart humanity and, like, change things.
0: Yeah, because... There, I guess a kind of similarity to the movie in the book is there's a there's a lot of problems with immigrants or sojourners they call them I think yeah so and but the, the other part that they explain in the book that you can't explain in a movie again
1: one of the benefits of a book is it seems that in order to have you know this hedonism for the elder the aging population they bring in younger people from around the world. But then, when they turn sixty, they just send them back.
0: Yes, like, yeah, yeah. You don't right.
1: get to, you don't get to to die. No social the security, There's nothing. You're just, you're, <laughs> no you're, you're, a, you're a temporary foreign worker, and you're temporary. Like, mm-hmm. and that's like locked in. So, it, yeah, that that seems to be the major issue. Is yeah. that essentially Luke and Julian and Rolf, and to the lesser degree the other two in this this group of five that are the fishes. Yeah. They're very concerned about the situation with
0: immigration. Yeah, they feel like like there's a massive injustice being mm, done to the world. And Julian, especially, and Luke to a smaller degree, but also maybe just more quietly, the two of them seem primarily concerned, from what you might call a social conscience point of view, like there is a real deep injustice being happened to you, not just like a faux f a u x. Injustice, like a faux outrage they have, but like a sincere feeling that there are like lines that shouldn't be crossed that are being crossed when it comes to dealing with other members of the species. Yes. In, in, in a so-called civilized or or the so-called last civilized country on earth kind of thing. And yet their leader who happens to be Julian's husband, Rolf, who I think in the movie is best portrayed by the Patrick character, the guy with the dreadlocks. So in the book, Rolf is the alpha male, And he kind of exemplifies a stereotype of an alpha male, of a kind of a meathead. (laughs) It pretends like he's in it for the group, but really he just he wants to be warden. (laughs) Basically, that's what comes out. Like Rolf, it's not that Rolf thinks that it shouldn't be a dictatorship. He just thinks there's the wrong dictator right now, and it should be him. And that he would do a better job. Yeah, Yeah. and then there's the other two, Miriam, who is the midwife character in the book, and she's the midwife character in the movie, but they play very different roles in the two. And I can't remember the fifth fish's name. Do you remember his name? He is an immigrant, but no, I don't remember Yeah, he was not particularly (laughs) significant. He didn't play a
1: significant role, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so... And they kind of... Yeah, they recruit Theo to talk to the warden he does he finds out later julian is pregnant and then we even find out later that it's not even rolf who's the dad it's luke who's the dad luke gets killed by the omegas they kind of escape to the forest julian has the baby and then they find julie the end of the book is basically zan the warden of england finding them finding the baby and then Yeah, there's no human project. No, there's no human project. There's no, it's a much less hopeful ending, I think, in the book (laughs) than in the movie, which I guess makes sense. You can't really make that ending in a movie in any exciting way. No,
1: yeah. And so we're left with this sense of what's going to happen with Zen. Like, what decision is he going to make, kind of thing. This one's much more about the state and power and what power does to you. And, you know, it's way more about sociology. There's
0: a lot more of the auxiliary side effects of this. State both politically and state of being in England. So in the book, they go into a lot more detail in things like quietus, which are basically voluntary suicides. Voluntary, quote unquote. Well, that's (laughs) part of the controversy is how voluntary are they really? And it's like obliquely mentioned in the movie, right? But it very differently. And then just the description of... Okay, so in the movie, you see tons of people in cages. In the book, you get pages and pages of description of why those people are in cages yes which is just more illuminating in the in the world so it's, I, it's more world building yeah but,
1: but like books are always going to be more world they're building way better at it yeah, yeah because yeah. you
0: can have a narrator <laughs> yeah you can you can have information so, just conveyed yeah.
1: raw information as yeah. opposed to having to interpret information through stimuli yeah that's happening in real time
0: well and as you as you point out differences between books and movies different mediums doing things well description or exposition in a book is just good narration yes (laughs) description or exposition in a movie is laziness yeah (laughs) and yeah it gets annoying so i I guess i kind of understand why they had to make like a kind of a different emphasis for the movie than the book but i was kind of blown away at how completely different the plots were (laughs) Did, like I don't know if you. Remember well, I guess that.
1: because I had read the book before, and because I and this was I watched read this book when I was seventeen. Oh, okay. And well, and watched the movie after, like later on when it came out, because uh, my friend was excited they were making a movie about *Children of Men*, because he like he loved JD's or P.D. James. Yeah. I mean, I was a very, very spiritual, spiritual young man, very committed to faith, and I, and so that was kind of the part that I picked out of the book, and was interested that it was not conveyed in the movie hardly at all, right? And also, there's a a nostalgia for any, I guess, Anglophile towards Oxford that's just <laughs> uh, there, right? Okay. And especially if you were into like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings, and like I was growing up. So, the idea of Theo being this Oxford professor preserving archaic knowledge in a dying world, there's just something immensely romantic uh, yeah. about it. It
0: should be pointed out too that his profession in the book is he's an historian, yeah, as opposed to a kind of office pencil pushing or paper pushing activist in the movie
1: yeah like he's not an activist at all so again no. like the entire premise of his character in the movie is different <laughs> than the premise of his character yeah it's here. just the same name yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just a person
0: with the same name it's
1: a it's a few people with the same name and that's really the and like
0: you said it's set the same oh world. and we should also point out that jasper is a character in the book but he's much Smaller of a role than in the movie, and he's a—he's just basically an asshole <laughs> <But he's just laughs> in the book. Not a good person. No, he's yeah. more of a villain than a hero. He's like one of the biggest heroes in the movie, <laughs> and he's just a complete dickhead in the book. <laughs> yeah. So the question that
1: I have for you is: the I think the biggest concept that I'm confronted by in this book is the idea of how do how surviving. In a in a dying world, so it's it's essentially a confrontation of mortality, right? And it's how how shall I then live, right? In light of this, what is your answer to that question? Um, how shall I live knowing I'm dying? Yeah, well, I mean, like, so it's put in stark contrast by no more children coming. So it's it's society's dying, but really. In in my opinion, all of these stories boil down to our personal story of how do we deal with our mortality. This guy's deciding to live his life in comfort and thoughtful reflection on human experience, yet knowing that all of that's going to end. But all of our personal worlds are going to end. So then how should we le- then live in light of that?
0: Hmm, okay. Yeah, so like, because of the setup of the of the narrative it's kind of like you have a double mortality facing you both your personal and and your species, species level yeah and your it's it, yeah it's a twofold because if you stop to think about it everyone is met with part one of that well and <laughs> and what does it really matter to the individual
1: the continuation of their species right that mortality is like still there so so how do you how do you square that circle <laughs> um
0: i i think it's maybe uh, one of the most genuinely difficult problems it would be, it would be i think what how to live well and live with purpose if you knew the species was going to go extinct i okay well one thought i had is that that's kind of the case already yeah Right? That's what I mean. So, this postulation of no more kids being born is kind of a more literal version of like one day the human species will either not exist or it will exist in such a manner that is unrecognizable as it is now that it might as well, it's going to be, it would be classified as a different species if there are any biologists left <laughs> to do such classification. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, How to interact and all that. And I guess for me personally, it's kind of the same answer that I would get back to for just my own personal mortality is that it's an emphasis on the existential side of life as taking prominence or uh, apex standing. And by that, I mean something like creating situations that are both enjoyable in the moment and yet are somehow building for something else. And even if it was building for nothing, <laughs> let's say, right? Like there's no yeah. one around to watch. There's no kids left in the hallways of the, play, of the schools. There's nobody to read the things I write down or to listen to the words I say at some point in posterity. I don't think I could do anything else. You know, like I don't actually think I couldn't, just drop it, right? Right, and that this is actually obliquely referenced in the book. Really early on, there are people who are saving things for posterity, just in right? case like, like the aliens just, show just up, just in yeah. case intelligence comes back. Now, I I actually think like <laughs> if in real life we were faced with an infertility epidemic, like they were in the book, I I think that there would. I think it would take everyone's attention and it wouldn't just, <laughs> I don't know. Like the science of all of this is not really well ascribed to. So uh, it, maybe it's a little boring to hmm, put on my nerd glasses. Well, I don't know how about the science and all that. Right, right. Right. But I do think that that is actually a pretty important aspect of it is that it, I I just don't know how we could not focus all of our resources on, on this, problem. on yeah. this thing but yeah i i I do see the power of the, what you're saying because I think children do have a way of bringing people together that they just don't have a commonality of purpose without education and well, without raising the, like, young people. like in
1: this in the, without the continuation of the species now we've mm-hmm. we've talked about that, but I guess. More on the just a very personal level, right? Like, would you still sing songs? Would you still write books if no one was ever going to read them? I mean, that's the essential question.
0: Yeah, I think so, because that's the existential part of it, is that I actually still get a kick out of it. Right, right, right. (laughs) Like, I get a kick out of playing guitar by myself and singing to myself, and I get a kick out of reading books that make me feel something and I get a kick out of writing something that makes me feel something and the fact that anyone else might too is like an awesome bonus but it's not really like I so love the work (laughs) of self-discipline in things I care about that it's kind of it's like part of what it takes to me to have a what you might call an examined life or a or a fulfilled life in as much as I can. So from that point of view, I don't actually think I need a progeny per se or a posterity per se to get that meaning. And I actually think that attitude in works of art or works of literature or works of, that reflection of the trying to better yourself. So when I read Tale of Two Cities, or Great Expectations. I see Dickens not trying to teach me a lesson, but to try to figure out himself at a deeper level oh, and to try and okay. figure out the world he's in at a deeper level. And an uh, awesome side effect of that is that I get to learn along with him. Right. When so I see Emerson re- write, yeah, okay, I, to I get a up, deeper... Yeah. I don't see Emerson trying to teach me a lesson, as it were. Not that he's not trying to educate, but I think it's fundamentally he's trying to... Kind of remind himself of these things, and I'm along for the ride in a really beautiful way,
1: because the idea of doing a work for the pleasure of doing that work in and of itself is I think an underappreciated modern concept every so yeah. many things are done simply to get attention yes to, to gain <laughs> accolades yeah I mean in a few episodes ago, we talked about my theory of of uh, belief and power right in the American gods episode. But, but now this is kind of the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't really matter if people believe in you because you're just gonna die and society's gonna die too. Yeah. Like, like how does, does this the warden like th- that question is asked, how does he continue to care about power when w- there won't be a legacy? Like the ancient Romans and Greeks, they did so much of what they did so that their name would you know echo down throughout history. And now we are we're confronted with a situation where there will be no history, right? <laughs> yeah, where there'll be no one to read. Well, I mean, eventually we we realize there there will at least be maybe some people. Mm-hmm. But I think that the other tragedy of obviously of the book is that uh, the problem with fertility seems to be with the with the men. Oh yeah, and with sperm itself, mm-hmm. and and the one fertile man gets <laughs> ripped apart by the omegas. Oh uh, yeah, right. So
0: like, well, there's yeah, that's the. That's the kind of post hoc tragedy <laughs> that you get. So the, the, okay. So I think I'm figuring out, because I, I re- that's not, all of that is really strand based and not coherent. So I think it's something like, to me, something that really matters. And that's, and this is, I know this is kind of a buzzword, so I don't mean it in that way, but like, I really care about authenticity in presentation and self and Stature and whatever way a constitution and to me that kind of thing is when if you are you are so invested in your project that it's satisfying if it's just you who gets to experience that because then that removes the need for flashy neon signs and attention grabbing headlines and making something in a way that it It's particularly not intended to grab at the baser instincts of people, but only could be noticed by their deeper reflections, which is, you know, I brought up Dickens, that's kind of how I feel, is that, like, you really have to go deep to get Dickens, but when you do, it's so satisfying. Well, like we said, it's a slog, like, reading
1: Dickens isn't easy, but you get... You get those moments of perception yeah. into the human psyche and to, and to the human experience that I there's almost unparalleled
0: mm-hmm. and and I think that that is what is motivating for me so that it's not necessarily that it needs to be noticed or even <laughs> because I don't know I mean this maybe is so off topic but I think the best education I ever got when I was a kid was by people who kind of almost tricked me into it It, like tricked me into learning things almost because they were tricking themselves by not actually like as it were being didactic or like lecturing but just kind of like talking about something they liked you know and I think that that kind of thing is like the educational part of it can be a part of the intention but I think it needs to be secondary to that more right, fundamental. Right, because it's
1: just about educating, that you're not as interested in it the ideas. And, and maybe it could even just right? be ideological. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? As opposed to authentic, like you said. So that's
0: that's kind of how I uh, deal with the fact of my abyss. mortal <laughs> coil. Fair. Uh, I do, this is a big caveat, though, ask me again when infertility hits right. <laughs> to the yeah. world. because I don't know because I actually, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, like a big part of life to me is being a good ancestor and trying to leave a world better for other humans that come later in me in time in the way that I've been given that gift. And so it would be pretty shaking Fundamentally, too, I think what I do—I mean, I work with kids. You know, like what what would we be working on with no future? I mean, I think about everything that I do in I,
1: life, and it's to try to build a better place. The right? future
0: seems to be baked into every decision that is meaningful to people. Yes, how could it not be? In one sense, well, right?
1: And and the, and the only way that we seem to be able to attain a level of, let's say, immortality, at least on a on a scientific physical level, mm. right, is Genetic. Only, it's genetic. It's genetic. Yeah, the only way. Right. So that, I think that's why it's so baked in. It's so okay, baked in. you
0: know what? As a thought experiment, I think that if we were faced with the infertility that they're faced in children of men, I think I would have to start getting really authentically in touch with stoicism. Yeah. And like the ability to say goodbye to us. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a pretty crazy... Species, yeah. yeah. Maybe we mentioned it last episode but sam harris's thought experiment of what's wrong with everyone dying in the middle of the night painlessly if there's no one to bereave
1: and yet it's
0: such a tragic (laughs) thought it feels like such a tragic thought but i think if we had no children infertility for 25 years and we were facing the prospect of going to bed on our own species i think the job would be to do that as humanely as possible (laughs) So this, brings- and I don't think that that <laughs> happens exactly in the book. No.
1: So this brings up a really important uh, point that I wanted to raise. Okay. So one of the big pushes within the environmentalist movement is so there was a tweet today. How? Which will date it? Hold on.
0: How intense in the environmentalist? Movement. I think it's pretty intense. Okay, is like is, is, is like the more radical stop, fringe?
1: Stop having children. We need population decline. The world's overpopulated. Humans are destroying the planet. We are the evil. We're the virus. It's that. It's that moment in the Matrix where, you know, Agent Smith says, "No humans are a virus." Mm, right. Right. Okay. And there's that belief, right? And for example, there was a tweet today that I saw where someone said, well, the one good thing about this uh, flu epidemic that's happening in China right now is that uh, at least it's, you know, lowering our carbon footprint. <laughs> like, human suffering, people dying, quarantines, like, absolute um, horror. And, and like, that's, that is to the level of a, re- a religion. But it is not uncommon, and I don't want to just put this on the environmentalist movement. I think there is a, a strain right. within humanity that hates itself. Well, <laughs> just like there's a strain within
0: people. No one can ever say now that uh, people who are anti human don't have a silver lining <laughs> right? the <You laughs> uh, perspective. The, the planet would be nice and green. There's that moment in the book that I love
1: where the um I think it's a vicar during Evensong mm. is in the church and he's and, the, and a deer comes in and he gets really upset upset and starts throwing things out, and he's like, Why can't they just wait? It will be it'll all be there soon. Mm-hmm. I want to get to down to this idea of why do we think that the planet would be better off without us? <laughs> well, and then I want to, and then I'll say my thoughts on it, but yeah, okay. like, I want to confront this idea. Cause I think it's a
0: toxic idea.
1: I guess that's exposes my position. Right? Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, there's certainly, it's almost a caricature to, I can't imagine or, uh, this this could be an empirical thing. I, could be totally wrong about this but i really can't imagine that the perspective of humans are a cancer on the planet and need to be wiped out to save the planet is not a particularly popular opinion in the world (laughs) right i wouldn't say it is popular. i think it would be useful to keep a sense of proportion of what percent of humanity we're talking about that actually feels this way because even if it's a point oh 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 five percent or something like that like Twitter still gives them a platform. Oh, okay. So, so So, fair, but but there are these stories now being written that are being
1: published in like mainstream media of of women and men saying, you know, I decided not to have children to help save the planet. You can uh, uh, go Google this, and you'll find, you know, uh,
0: well, fundamentally, the libertarian in me would just be like, that's fine. Oh no, I'm I'm fine with it. Right? Saying, but what 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 do I think? What is the underlying
1: first principle? Of what they're saying. Well,
0: okay, you know what? Like the char- the most charitable interpretation of their decision is that they genuinely think that humans are making the planet unbearable for future generations of humans, and the pain and suffering to be alleviated by the people who do exist in the future is worth person X Y Z foregoing children themselves. Now setting aside the logical conundrum of like well if everyone does that there's no one in the future to have yeah, a pain and suffering yeah. or any other experience but i mean even still like that's a different perspective than the fringe one you're talking about which is i call the anti-human are, yes right yes. because presumably the people who are choosing to not have children are doing it so that someone in the future can have a better time or or <laughs> or to save the planet and I, this is the idea that i want to get to i
1: don't This is going to be radical. Right. I don't think that the planet is worth saving without humans.
0: Well, (laughs) I think without humans, the language of what worth or not worth breaks down. Right. Like, I think it's meaningless. I think that the planet (laughs) will sustain itself (laughs) with or without humans. I I agree. So really kind of what you're saying then is you need other consciousnesses to understand what's going on when we're using the words we're using as opposed to what actually... The planet could or couldn't do with or without us well yeah (laughs) does that make sense yeah but i I guess okay so i'm thinking okay the fringe part of anything to me is like a synonym for a religion right like the fringe of the environmentalist movement is a religion the fringe of the left wing of the any political system is a religion the fringe of the right wing is a is a religion because it's more interested in its dogmas than in its idiosyncrasies of an argument, let alone evidence, right? Right. So I have noticed, and we'll talk about this more in a future episode because I've really noticed it in something we just watched today, I guess. One of the major indications that people are thinking not clearly, (laughs) let's say, or dogmatically, or ideologically, or religiously, Mm -hmm. is that they've managed to make the most non-human things about people right <laughs> they've managed to make what's going on in the entire atmosphere about humans right <laughs> people managed to make the entire creator of the cosmos primarily interested in one species on this planet and particularly one group of people <laughs> of that one species, uh, right, right? <laughs> uh, people have managed to make an entire historical force of hundreds of thousands of years about one or two or three uh, political or economic forces that affect people in post-industry Europe. (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah. So to me, one of the big warning signs of that you're not dealing with the most intellectually honest actor is if it's kind of all about people at some level. And I actually think that's what makes that environmentalist movement the one that you're referring to dogmatic i won't say religious because that's a different connotation but dogmatic yeah what evidence can you give to people who think humans are a cancer on a planet that we're not like that's a that's a pretty stark (laughs) perspective so all you can do is try to talk to other people listening to them
1: Right, right. Like, just like, like you always bring up pigeons. Yeah. He, he was having debates, not to convince the person he's debating,
0: but to make the audience think new things.
1: Yes, right, right. And so, so I guess here's here's what what I want. Yeah, yeah. I want to make the audience. I want to make the audience think a new thing. Sure. Right. And maybe I'm making a straw man here, and I, I see what you're doing. You're you're steel manning it, and I appreciate that. But one of the things that bothers me is not whether or not climate change is happening. I think climate change is happening and I do think humans have played a role in it. Like I think how can we not? Look at look at what we've done to the earth. Like we, we have yeah. settled it. We've if you go to Europe, that place is tamed. Mm. Like that's not Canada. That is a tamed geographical area. Sure. Like sure they have some wilderness, but you know, the rolling hills of England
0: are, are not yeah. are not a wilderness. Well, anymore. and you'd have you have to like protect them to keep it that way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like so, you know, humans transform the environment they're in. I don't I don't have any question against that. But when we begin to embrace an idea or think about an idea, and an, and I I do think it's an anti human idea, and there's gradients of that anti human idea. But like you you gave so the person who says I'm not gonna have children to, to help save the planet. You gave a great uh counter argument to how they might be trying to like alleviate suffering for others. And that that's fair. That's best case scenario. That's best case scenario. But what bothers me about the idea is that essentially the future of the, of the ecosystem of this planet and the species that make up, make up, make it up and all that kind of stuff is more important than human consciousness. And I just I find that idea so difficult to
0: swallow. Well, it's kind of self-defeating. Yeah. Because it's uttered by a human consciousness. So <laughs> well, yeah. why should I take it seriously if that's what's to be undermined?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but like, I mean, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't make any sense. I think this is the kind of thing that just baffles pe- let's say people on the right uh, about about uh, this perspective, right? Right. Is and drives them to a little bit of madness because it just seems so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you hate humans? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why do you hate us? Right. Like yourself. Why are you so self-loathing?
0: Well, I guess. And My first encouragement would to be, if you are politically right of center, try not to fixate on the craziest people as the representative people of people who don't totally agree with you. Yes, do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I think hopefully one of the things we're doing with a podcast like this is <laughs> opening up that middle ground as much as possible. Yeah. right. No, oh, and I agree with that, but I guess what I'm warning against
1: is I think what I see as a slippery slope of not valuing humans and the dignity of human life.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I think that's a right? totally fair point. Yeah. I
1: think I think when you start to think of humans as the problem, you end up in a... And and the weird part is, you're never going to... When you start thinking of humanity as a problem, it's always going to be the concept of humanity.
0: Yeah, well, and that's exactly what has kind of... Anytime you've managed to make a group demonized, yeah. well, we've seen when that happens, right? I guess I'm just kind of saying like, I wonder, like, are you, because it, it kind of seems to me like you're saying it's not really on the radar to watch out for the crazy environmentalists of the world. And I'm like, I feel like it kind of is. So maybe we just have, like, a particular, like, where is the social consciousness on this particular right. group of people, right? True. And maybe it's it, can, it could be something as simple as, like, what kind of podcasts or news you, yourself, and I, or I, myself, or anyone listens to. But, like, I feel like... At least what the kind of media I consume and news I consume is like, yeah, we're pretty aware of how there's a strain of hardcore environmentalists who are actually just anti-human and there to be wary of already. Right. And you saying maybe that isn't as clear yet? I don't think it's. Oh, but okay. I think
1: I think you tend to listen to the highest common denominator news and things <laughs> like that. Like, right. I don't think you're delving into the ideological pits. So...
0: Well then, okay, here, yeah. I'll, I'll invite you to give a common sense and Here's what I mean by common sense. Not fucking crazy. That's what I want common sense to be understood by people. It's like like common sense environmental steps are the ones that aren't fucking crazy. And the fucking crazy ones are not giving a shit about the environment and actually trying to maximize our pollution. That's one version of the fucking crazy idea. (laughs) And the other fucking crazy idea is kill all people so that there's no problem with the environment, right? Those two fringe ends are the fucking crazy ones and the common sense are not those. So what is your... Common, common sense, sense environmental uh, actions that can be taken, let's say by an individual, by Canada, and then by the leaders of a planet. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so okay. three different levels of so, analysis. So on the
1: individual level, I mean, I think uh, reducing your your waste is is essential, right? Like we have reached a point where we're consuming more than we can possibly produce if at, at the level of our consumption. Like, I love the minimalist movement. I hate this idea that we have to constantly be buying new things and we have to constantly be consuming, like... And
0: things that are planned obsolete, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. planned to things run out. Things that are
1: actually supposed to break down. Like, I don't like that. I like that we used to build, like, furniture that would last generations. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of going back to those things. Buying local, huge, growing your own food. Like, we grew up, our moms grew gardens right. every time, right? Th- these are great things for, for the environment and... Another thing is maybe not, maybe thinking through your approach to plastic because plastic actually preserves food in a way that no other material can. And if you attack plastic too much, you might end up in in a situation where you just have a lot more food waste, which is actually a huge contributor to emissions. Yeah, there you go. Right? So, so finding that balance, I would say be thoughtful, not reactionary, right? And be thoughtful about everything you do. So, and like
0: any hot button issue, live it before you preach it. (laughs) Yeah, on an individual
1: level, be very thoughtful about your decisions and realize that your habits are really what's with anything. Realize that your habits are what producing your outcomes. Mm. So if like you just you're tired, so you're always buying, you know, prepackaged food, you're going to produce more waste and you're going to be a bigger burden on the environment.
0: Okay, that's
1: good. So on an individual. Yeah. Then on a on what can Canada do? Well, Canada has some of the largest natural gas reserves in the entire world. Natural gas is one of the cleanest fuels you can burn. So we should be exporting it to every country we possibly can, getting them to burn it. We also have some of the largest uranium deposits in the world. And we have the largest uranium deposits outside of those that are controlled by uh, Russia. So we should be developing what what they call SMRs, small-medium reactors, that can be used... All over the place. Yeah. Right, yeah. Is nuclear energy dangerous? Sure. But it's the future? Is it the future? Yes. It's perfectly clean. Yes, there's there's uranium waste, but we know how to deal with that. Right? Like, it's not like we're just dumping it in the oceans now. Like, we, mm-hmm. we know what to do. We can send it up to space. Right? <laughs> like, there's all kinds of things we can oh, do. But then you got the space environmentalists on your ass. <laughs> yeah. Man, so there's a great series called the Mars series, Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars. Yeah. Uh. And uh, there's there's the Martian purists who oh. like, want to keep Mars the way it sure, was. Sure, of course. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, sorry. So I think that's those are two big things that we could do to reduce our emissions. Mm. And then I think we're already way ahead of a lot of the world on recycling and things like that. Yeah. And, and I think recycling it, mm-hmm. is a is a huge future topic. But then, what can the leaders of the world do? Okay. Well, they can stop pretending that this is a nationalistic problem.
0: Yeah. Like, right
1: why give china why give china room to just continue ramping up emissions and demand that the industrial did, so here's a good example the russian com- economy collapsed in the 1970s and early 80s mm. which meant their emissions were dramatically reduced like dramatically they're still getting credit for that according to the global system right so therefore they can produce more now oh because they didn't produce as much then but
0: it was not intentional well a it wasn't intentional <laughs> and
1: b the problem is not what happened in the past we can't do anything about that the issue of global warming is a global issue that's now right. and we should all be reducing this it. but it's being used as a political football to impose sanctions yeah on certain countries by other countries it's like anything else is being used as a weapon
0: yeah
1: Whereas what I'm interested in is actually reducing global emissions and making sure that you know we still have things like rainforests. So
0: yeah, that's I mean that all. So so how do we address this
1: as global leaders? We say Canada says, "Hey, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell you a lot of natural gas, China at a discount,
0: right? To make to help you get off emissions, and that's the kind of thing you do. That would. So then would that be the kind of thing that helps a Rising middle class in, in China, and, China, and yeah. India, well, places like they, that, because we want them to have electricity. Well, we one, want of, them to have one power. of the big arguments I've heard is that now that we have gone through, uh, we being the West, now that we've gone through our industrial revolution and did all our polluting and got advanced technologically, who are we to really turn around and wag our finger at countries like China well, and, and that's a and fair India who fair are doing statement. it themselves? That's a fair statement. Yeah, exactly. That's but, but what they're I mean. the ones producing all the emissions. Well, but then the point is then. Well, how do you solve that problem? And are you saying it's lower trading of
1: resources? I say it's working together as a global unit as opposed to saying, well, you know. So one of the arguments you hear a lot is, well, Canada's one of the largest per capita emitters. We're only 1.5% of total emissions, but like as individuals, each individual. So it becomes... A penance as an individual. Yeah, you know another reason we're one of the artist-admitters? because it's fucking cold here. Yeah, and true. And you would die in the dark if you didn't, <laughs> you know, burn yeah. a little extra. Mm. So, so maybe we find a way to so deal with that.
0: Canada is where everyone should move if they hate humans. <laughs> if, you're right. of the, if you're one of the anti-humanists, so, yeah, I do want. I do want to circle back Don't, to the turn book the furnace because
1: I do feel like we. I guess I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but my point is. The problem that the globe is uh, trying—and this actually goes back to the book—the problem that the the globe is trying to solve in the book is infertility. And they're all—France sets up this massive, you know, complex dedicated entirely to figuring out the infertility problem. China has one. America has one. They all set up these institutes, right? But then one of the things that it talks about is that I love and I think is very insightful into geopolitics is— the spy industry exploded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Suddenly, all these nations were hiring spies. They're trying to because f- who finds out how to fix this problem first, they benefit. And suddenly, we're not humanity anymore.
0: We're Russians, and we're, we're puppets. Tra- yeah, yeah. We're we're stooges for whatever group can prove that their group is best. And it's kind of I mean this is a completely different topic, but like what forces group psychology. And I would say it's people like Rolf in the book who force group psychology on yeah, people. people who want to dominate. People who want to dominate and who don't... This might seem a little elitist, but I think it's true. People like Rolf are the people who aren't very good at thinking. No. <laughs> but who are very good at being stronger than other people. Well, there's and there's tactics and strategies. There's, right? ta- there's, there's the kind of bootstrapping impulse to care more about being on top... Than care about rising all boats or yes. raising all boats, yes. right? And then you have maybe more the kind of marionette type pulling of the strings, people behind the scenes who are also interested in that, but maybe don't have the physical presence to do it, right? And I guess those are the two types who kind of want.
1: Well, and their value and their the meaning group. comes from power, mm-hmm. right? Becomes from their power, and over they know other how people. to
0: take advantage of the beastly side of humanity yes to whip it up they know how to make people feel more
1: dogmatic right and i feel like the that's what's happening right now (laughs) you mean in
0: our world yeah
1: like i feel like we have a real problem and that's climate change yeah we have a real problem and that's the great barrier reef is being bleached because the ocean's getting hot like we have a real problem. And our answer to that problem is that a country that produces 1.5% of emissions has to reduce by 50%. It won't change anything. Yeah, but it'll make us feel better. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's why it, it pisses me off. Well, of I course. hate solutions that make us feel better. It's it's like in the book, all these women going around with the dolls. Remember, and there's that yeah, scene yeah. Oh, yeah. where this woman's walking up to him with the, the little carriage and the doll, and then a uh, middle-aged woman walks up, grabs a doll and smashes it on the street and it
0: destroys
1: this one woman psychologically and she's just ruined well sometimes i feel like the canadian obsession with reducing our own emissions as opposed to addressing the global problem is like running around with that doll
0: yeah but i mean i both totally get and acknowledge that as a problem but i i just think that that is something we talked about earlier how it's just it's If you go after a much easier local (laughs) pseudo perceived problem and kind of half solve it, you get the emotional cathartic feeling of solving a problem without having to do all of the work. And really, this is is a problem that human human psychology has been hijacked. Yeah, yeah. And um, I I honestly think that all you and I can really do is just be like, "Well, watch out for people trying to hijack your psychology." I guess it's like Auden (laughs) says, right? All I have is a voice. Yeah, and so anti-humanists or anti people who are anti-human, there's some segment of them. And if that ever became, I don't know. It's hard to judge like how much of a percent of people believe something before you have to take it seriously. Well, like that's, that's always like I actually
1: like a- see um, see Marxism, at least in the Stalinist form mm. and Hitler's Germany as human hating. Yeah. Right. Because because as soon as you define if you, if you don't value the dignity of the individual human life, which I guess is what really bothered me about that tweet, which set off this whole rant to begin with, where it's like, well, at least we'll reduce carbon emissions. Right. Like, that is not a valuing of the dignity of the human life of those Chinese people who are suffering.
0: No, no.
1: And, and it's flippant. And wh- as soon as you turn humans into something other than the dignified beings that we we try to perceive the mass within i would argue liberal the mm-hmm. liberal mind yeah you're done you could just kill them then
0: yeah i had one other thought about that because it something in all of that reminded me of something in a more philosophical sense like something you might learn in a philosophy class oh yeah okay so i think it was like the thing around where you said like the world would be better off without humans i think you said like human consciousness right like the world would the the planet would be better without human consciousness Well, for that to be uttered, a human consciousness had to utter it. So if I take the content of the words seriously, I can't take the speaker seriously. But if I can't take the speaker seriously, why should I take the content of their words seriously? Right. So there's a kind of, I forget what it's called, but there's a term in philosophy for it where the form of an argument can be self-defeating to the content of the argument. And if the form of the argument is self-defeating, then the content is like meaningless. Irrelevant. Right? Right. The moment you take pen to paper to argue against the uh, necessity or plausibility of reason. <laughs> you, yeah. You, the only way you, uh, you know, what, whatever, bring it on philosophy nerds. The only way you can actually really argue against reason is to talk gibberish. Right. Because <laughs> the moment you use words that are trying to be conceptual to my mind, you're trying to reason with me. Yeah. So, the form doesn't match the content, and actually, I I try to manipulate that particular concept for humor a lot, where the form of my joke will actually be the punchline and not the words I'm saying. Right, right. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so do they're that a self self referential in that way, and yeah, yeah, It's often it's sometimes appreciated and often <laughs> confused, and more more than anything, eyes are rolled. Right, <laughs> which you enjoy immensely. Which I do enjoy immensely. Yes. <laughs> Well, that was great. I really, I didn't expect all of that in the way you're thinking of this book because none of that really occurred to me, but that's why this podcast is so good for you and me. Exactly. Get our ideas out there. Hey, everybody. David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. Well, now, just a couple things about Theo. So very early in the book, Theo has this line that kind of was arresting to me because it's something that I have thought about a lot, but only in like the last third of my life it kind of occurred to me in this, and it's different than how you kind of think about time, I think, as you're growing versus when you're a little older, and he says, We can experience nothing but the present moment, live in no other second of time, and to understand this is as close as we can get to eternal life. And I remember, I must have been maybe 22 or 23, when I first really, the epiphany hit me. It was like, I will never experience the future. And I will never experience the past. I will only ever experience the present. And so, especially when you're raised with the idea of how, I mean... (laughs) We talk about future and its relevance, but like, I think there's an unhealthy way the future is foisted upon young people as the be all and end all that kind of can (laughs) drive up anxiety for things like school and university and jobs and that kind of thing. And yet, you never experience the future. You just plan for it. And I don't know, like, have you ever... I can't even really articulate this into a question other than what do you think... A realization like that might change about a person in the way that they live their life, if anything, or is that something you've always known? I've thought about that,
1: Oof. so the first time I had that realization, I think I didn't have it directly, it was indirectly, and it was when I realized the idea of existing perpetually into the like that that for existing forever was terrifying to me mm-hmm. and the reason that that was terrifying, I think was because. That's a timescale you just cannot wrap your head around. But then I looked around me, and it didn't seem to bother. And, like, at the time, obviously, everyone around me was Christians. But mm. it didn't it didn't bother people at all. And I realized most people were living in the present. They were existing there. And the future obsession that I had, which I had in spades, like, my entire being was focused on the future, I would say. Right. Um, and what I was going to become and my potential and, and all the things that are, like, I think you call it, what do you call it? A teleological view of reality. Oh, yeah. Right? And that was me. Like, that was who I was. That was my identity. And that's (laughs) terrifying when when suddenly it's like, well, what do you achieve in eternity?
0: Yeah, and I mean, to me, the deep, I won't call it a lie, but the deep deception, even, or misleading nature of teleology is that part of it is that you do arrive somewhere there is an end that you're supposed to get to, and then you have a static. You have a static reality of perfection, right? <laughs> but it's like, well, what? <laughs> like that is how incoherent. That yeah, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. then, and then, what about the next day? Like, is it right. still just more perfection the next the, day? Yeah. Like, what? Wh- how would I know? Yeah. So how would I know what I got there? So I
1: think did I always know it? Well, no, I don't think i did but i do remember very early on in life coming like just having that kind of flash moment of oh and now the present's gone and now the present's gone
0: yeah yeah yeah. you know what here's how it's benefited my life i just was thinking about this as you're talking and and reflecting on your words a bit i think i've mentioned before and so i think it was american gods podcast how i have all i've i've often had these vain fears and by vain i mean scared of things in my past, that could have gone bad, and then I would be dead and not here thinking about right, them. Which right, is, which is a vain fear, because Which is it's a vain impossible. fear, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you wouldn't be here yeah, if that had Or, career. like, just that kind of, like, scared feeling of being up on heights. But, like, not while it's happening. Afterwards. In, afterwards, right? And I think one of the great realizations of knowing it's only ever the present I'll experience is that I'm actually really competent and aware and not in trouble in the present. Like, ever. <laughs> yeah. Like the you know, present's going like, okay. Like the fear of getting into a car accident really only is ever in my mind when I'm not driving. Cause right. when I am driving, I'm very aware of what's going Like all my, my senses are in full like flow state, right? Yeah. Like I'm checking all the time. I'm my mirrors. I'm seeing how the brakes are going. Like I'm, not out of it, right? Like I'm focused on the task at hand, so it's not actually that dangerous, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like and like anything, when you're involved in the moment, it's actually a lot less dangerous than it well, feels it, when you're not doing it.
1: And even what w- often our fear of what, uh, so that that's a good example of the past. Like looking back, like when you look at the past, and I would say I'm the other way, I'll look into the future and be like, "What if this happened?" I remember being a kid. My parents would leave me with a babysitter, and I would be struck with terror. What will I do if my parents die? Well, then that is a terrifying thought for a child. Their yeah. whole world will come crumbling down. Mm-hmm. However, children's parents do die, right? and, and they continue on, and, right. and they live fruitful and meaningful lives. Yeah. Just like when all of my stuff was stolen from the back of a church, and, sure, yeah, and yeah, I had yeah. to like cock my way onto an airplane with a fishing license. Yeah. Right? Like When the moment comes... It's never as bad as the fear of that moment. Yeah.
0: I guess my supposition would be that I actually think people are way better in the moment than they are in the past or the future. Right. And yet we obsess so much about those two things. But I guess the comfort is it only ever will be in the moment. Yeah. (laughs) There only ever is the moment. And that
1: is a very, that is as close to immortality as we'll ever get. And that's
0: liberating in the sense that it, where people are better at that than they think. (laughs) And And we only ever have to deal with it that way. uh, Yeah. So I like that. I I like like that that. too. That's very good. That made me feel good about (laughs) that part. Uh, Here's another thing Theo said that I really liked. And this is on sex. Because obviously, like, what dimension in people's lives does sex take on when infertility has hit? Uh, But it had a funny line. We can leave it at humor, but it made me chuckle. In no area of life are we more convinced things will get better if we persevere. And I guess yeah. it is part of that Hope Springs Eternal type of atmosphere, you know, because yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I no, don't really I, have any I friends. I know what you're it saying. It was just yeah. funny. It's well, like, I like that. We're,
1: yeah. Well, we'll keep persevering, Luke.
0: <laughs> you know, he's of this demeanor that he doesn't want anyone to look for him. He's kind of, he's not exactly an anti-hero, but he's reluctant. Right. He's a, I think we said cynical in the previous one, right? So what's, oh, okay. We also forgot to mention this because it's huge. What is so different in the book to the movie is that in the movie, he had a son with Julian, and this son died a couple of years before people got infertile. It was a daughter. No, no. In the it, it's a daughter in the. Oh book. right, it's Dylan. Yes, in it's the right. movie it's a son, but in the book. He's actually married to this other woman named Helen, maybe? Is and that he her name? And he runs over his daughter. And he's dog. run over their daughter in yeah. the driveway when she was like two and a half, three. Which is so much more tragic. Yeah, way more tragic. So this is like kind of what he's living with in all this. One last thing about him that he notices that I wanted to bring up in this podcast, because I think it is relevant to our times, is that midway through the book, he's got a little bit of an awareness that self-censorship is evidence of unease. And seeing as we kind of are in the era of self-censorship right now <laughs> i'll I'll just speak for myself i in the last 5 years of my life i've been in several scenarios where i just don't really say what i think about something not because i'm agreeing with the people around me or the or or let's say in a group of 7 the the most strident yeah. <laughs> insister of a particular viewpoint it's not that i agree with them it's just like oh, uh, this isn't the time, this isn't the place, or I don't want to deal with this right now. Yeah, But it doesn't leave me feeling good. And no. it doesn't leave me mentally well either, I would say. it Like it, it wears on me for like several hours, if not the rest of the day. And it can be just a meditation. I thought it was really interesting how that kind of perspective was taken in a book written in 1991, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean- it shouldn't be that surprising I guess cuz that's also what John Stuart Mill was talking about in 1859 or whatever year on liberty came out but just the psychological unease of self-censorship. Well, it's
1: uh I think it's a speaking of people who can get to our animal sides and manipulate us that way. Like self-censorship is just pack animal behavior. It's like, well, I need to be more similar to everyone else in order to protect yeah. my viability as being a member of the tribe
0: yeah so i think it's well like put an age ancient problem sure yeah and it will continue you to don't want to go against the orthodoxy of your era or time or group or tribe or whatever but because we're existentially afraid of being left alone in the dark yeah but it's just it's like a it's such a wizard behind the curtain isn't it it's, it's not like, real anymore. It's a paper tiger. It,
1: but it was real. Yeah. Right? That's the thing, right? It's based on the reality of you had a better chance of surviving if you were in the tribe than out of the tribe.
0: Well, okay. This is probably a topic for a different podcast, but what, it, what are some antidotes socially that we can start to build in to make it more safe? I don't like that word, though, because what fuck's, you know, it's safety, like we're the safest fucking people ever. Yeah. <laughs> What kind of social antidotes can there be for encouraging and giving some fortitude to people to not self-censor when they think it's important? Yeah. You know, like
1: it's kind of social scaffolding. How do, we, how do we utilize society to actually encourage unique behavior? Well,
0: little teaser. I have an idea, but it'll <laughs> hey. be coming out later. Later, all right. <laughs> so Jasper, he has a deep dislike for the young so he reminded me of just the misanthrope, yeah. you know, like just fuck the young people. Yeah. I'm, he's like, act, he's like probably one of the few people in the world who's happy that, that everyone's uh, gone. Because yeah. he's not anti-human. He's just anti-25 and under. Yeah, <laughs> they're not developed. Yeah. yeah. I really liked Julian in the book. She was probably my favorite character, how she wanted, pe- she wanted to change people's minds. And she has this line, if we are dying, we can die as human beings, not devils. Yeah. And so she's kind of like the better angels part of in the Abraham Lincoln sense of human nature of that's what she's focused on. And I, I think we've talked about before how like you kind of become what you're focused on, right? Or you, yes. bec- you, you, you become what you pursue. And I think part of the reason, well, no, I would say the entire reason psychologically that Julian is a good person Quote unquote, is because of what, what, she what she focus, what part of people she focuses on.
1: Well, and and this gets us back to what we were discussing earlier. But I think it's important, right? Is you can look at humanity and say, "What a filthy pile of wretched beings!" Like, why, why? You can you can hate humanity. Why not? There's lots of reasons to do it. But you can
0: also love humanity. Yeah, I mean, for all of- and and that's <laughs> a choice. Yeah, and for all of its shittiness. It's still human beings that came up with Sonic the Hedgehog. Right. Have you seen <laughs> <1992? laughs> 1992 Sonic the, the Hedgehog? Hedgehog in Sonic the Hedgehog 2? I remember when I first saw that game, and I was like, I think before that I'd only ever seen 8-bit. It was the first 16-bit I'd ever seen. And the music and the feel, and I was like, whoa! <laughs> you know? Yeah. And those whoa moments also come from, from human nature. Human. Yeah, You know? Yeah. It's worth remembering exactly (laughs) oh okay this was really cool because it reminded me of ivan in brothers karamazov yeah so there's a scene in a book where theo is in a cab i think and he's talking to the driver and they're talking about god right and they're talking about if god has done this to people if god has taken away the ability for people to have children and the driver after a bunch of expletives and angry ranting, his final line that kind of encapsulates his entire thought is, and he's speaking about God specifically when he says this, I hope he burns in his own hell. And the idea is that God isn't good enough for us. And the first time probably ever in culture that that idea came out was in Brothers Karamazov, right? When Ivan's talking about how, even if God exists, he's actually less moral than people. So, he is not worthy of humans, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which totally flips the idea on its head of, you know, previously it's like humans are lucky to even have a God that even would pay attention to them. Whereas Ivan Karamazov, or the driver in this book, is saying, well, no, God can go fuck himself because he's not even good enough for us. And in the Brothers Karamazov, which is a book we'll definitely do eventually, He's talk- He Ivan has just told a story about these two parents who've, Sent their like five or six year old daughter who got in trouble into an outhouse overnight to be- die. To, to, well, as discipline, yeah. and she died in the cold alone, starving in an outhouse. And Ivan's saying, if a god could prevent that and doesn't, why should we care about him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is well, that a revolutionary idea in the history theodicy, of theology. Theodicy, right? Theodicy, right? Yeah. Is like
1: probably the most significant theological problem is Mm -hmm. the odyssey like the problem of evil right
0: but previous to dostoevsky let's say right most of at least like scholastic work on that and there's like obviously aristotle and epicurus and you know some of the greek philosophers had a different perspective on this but the scholastics kind of really worked hard to square that circle (laughs) and figure it out and you know, free will and all that. That's that's not really what I want to get into right now. I'm just because when I first read that in Brothers Cameras Off, how maybe God isn't maybe maybe humans are more moral than God if he exists, that was an arresting thought to me. Right. It's like right. holy crap. We are actually better than God. Well in I mean, our best it, moments. It is a, if that's uh, what he does.
1: It's definitely a um an attractive thought because it uh, I mean it's the oldest oldest lie in the book let's say well and it's so then interesting to be like elevating yourself above a deity is something yeah. that people have been trying to do since like i mean the tower of babel the story's old as time
0: yes then
1: we can be like gods
0: yeah but i think what's different about ivan's take in brothers well, I, making a moral oh yeah accusation instead of the, power, the tower of moral. babel is uh hubris right right ivan karamazov is morality Right. And, or ethics. And that's, it's so fucking interesting to me. And especially, and this might be like more unique to our backgrounds, but the idea that we could be more ethical than God would have been deep blasphemy. Right. True. <laughs> but, true. so when any physical or evidential uh, thing of quote unquote evil happens in the world, the kind of m- mental, Gymnastics that the adults in our life went through to justify it in one sense or another seem so much less parsimonious than Ivan, right? Who's <laughs> just saying we're actually better because we wouldn't do that,
1: right? <laughs> Except, and I guess that's the problem we do.
0: Well, we being some of us, right? right? <laughs> that's which, thing. which goes back to more my more fundamental argument is that humans make their de- deities in their own image, right? And some of our image is evil, and some of it is good, yeah. which is the different dichotomies of it, right? Anyway, I just thought no, that no, was a yeah, cool... it's good. Okay, there's this great term, and we talked about a little bit last one, but one of the ways used to describe the society of England in this world is ennui universal. Yeah. <laughs> and for those who don't know, ennui is a French term, E-N-N-U-I, and there isn't like a specific... There isn't like a direct synonym in English. Probably... I think in my travels, the word that is most closely captured in English is listlessness and maybe meaninglessness. But meaninglessness has a more nihilistic overtone to it. Like ennui is this idea that there's just so nothing to do and nothing nothing to be motivated by. So you just are kind of a zombie through your days. Yeah. <laughs> and doing your best. But it's not like there's no anger. There's no love there's no frustration. It's like an absence of emotion. As opposed to nihilism, which can still bring deep emotions. I think
1: I like listlessness as the word. Yeah. Right? Because it's kind of like what what just you're just like standing around
0: there. kicking at the Dirt yeah, like, <laughs> all
1: day. you're bored, but you're not going to do anything about it, Yeah, you're you're just kind of complaining about being bored, but you're not even complaining about being bored, because that would be taking action.
0: But, like, if you get a little bit annoyed about being bored, then you're giving too much of a shit about yeah. it, and that's not cool either, so you get annoyed that you're annoyed about it, so you go back to being just bored. <laughs> like, ennui
1: would be, like, a whole week of just binging Netflix, not because you're depressed, but because...
0: You don't have anything else to but do. But not getting anything out of the show yeah, you're watching not even either. thinking about it. Yeah, like, oh. sitting in bed, but just like chips all over your blanket and your chest, watching a show... And as soon as it's over not knowing at all what happened. Or thinking about it again. Thinking about something else, but not remembering what you think about. And all of a sudden time has passed and nothing has happened, but you don't even feel bad about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like it's
1: it's it's a horrible feeling. <laughs> it's uh
0: of course the French figured this shit out. Eh? <laughs> yeah, of course. They, they figured have a word. everything out. <laughs> of course they have a word for it. So I guess why? generally obviously a negative thing is that it's it's kind of like it might well i don't know if it's a corruption of or an opposite of creation right like destruction is ostensibly the opposite of creation but what would be the lack of a spark to create in the first place as opposed to creation It'd be we yeah yeah so he's a historian theo history is the least interesting discipline of a dying species that's a line he has in a book but it feels a little bit like that now do you know what I mean? Like, how interested is our culture in history?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think the pre- most prevalent, let's say, psychological positioning, like worldview that we have right now is that the history is bad. But there was so much just... We were so Tragedy. stupid and, and awful and bad back then, and we just kind of want to erase it and move on to this glorified idea of
0: of, you know... But see... Why that's – okay, this might seem an obvious thing, but whatever. The reason that that is foolishness is that erasing history dooms us to repeat it because we are the exact same fucking species as everything yeah. in his. Because recorded history, quote-unquote, is Just at most 6,000 years old, well, and well. our species is – Approximately hundred thousand, if not older. So we're fundamentally the same creatures as six thousand years ago. So anything from six thousand years ago to now, we'll just do again if <laughs> the circumstances yeah, but there's are the this same.
1: Weird idea that we're better now. That we've you know we've overcome our our animal nature. We've overcome our pasts, and now we are you know there's we're progressing towards this utopia.
0: I think that's an understandable illusion, though, in a couple senses. One is that the technology is so clearly better now that it you just look around and it looks better. Our material stances are better. And that has happened because of human progress. Science, yeah. <laughs> Science. And also, I do think we are morally better. Not that we're morally superior because it's hard fought and out of the teeth of many people who still even don't want ethical gains. Lincoln freeing the slaves came out of the teeth of many, many, many people who didn't want it, and it's not perfect now, but it's improving even since then. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So I think it's useful to delineate the we're not superior. But some of that's but just we're, geographic. Yeah, like, but it's these are
1: pretty bad for the you know the the child slaves mining rare earth minerals in the Congo. And, you know, it's not great for the Uyghurs in, in China.
0: Yeah. Right? Like. But, I. well, why I think it's improving, I don't want to, like, it's not better, maybe. Well, no, better is good, but not superior. I don't know. Like, it's because it's a more, like, continuing project. Right. So why I think it's improving is that the child slave in Congo or the Uyghur people in China, I think in 2020... Never has there been a higher percentage of the entire global population who thinks that that is actually a bad thing. Right. Right. Like, if you took the total number of people who would vote, say, no, that's not good, it's probably higher now than it's ever been. Right. Okay. Fair ever. Yeah. And like, that's maybe a pittance to those people, but it's something. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that is a point not to say, hey, fuck pat ourselves on the back, let's get on that hubris train again and fuck everybody who lived before uh, (laughs) (laughs) 1995 to to give a little nod to children of bed, right? (laughs) Right. It's It's to try and go back to paying attention to the things that helped us do that in the first place. And I actually think it is the hearts and minds approach to people's stories. So things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, Huck Finn, in our more modern scenario, shows like Will and Grace. Yeah. Or even Modern Family, right? Like, uh that our help i mean if <laughs> fuck if they could uh, the movie blood diamond probably hopefully well i don't know i mean maybe this is a tokenism but i I, i would hope a movie like blood diamond would, would, have, a help, would have a positive in. impact in people's perceptions but who knows i mean because who knows where the metal in our phones comes from right yeah <laughs> in which parts of africa it's in but then also like it's so overlaid because there's so many other problems in other parts of the world that aren't just yeah. <laughs> slavery. and It's not as black and white. Yeah, but I think it's – I don't know. I actually see human ethical improvement in the world as a deeply humbling experience to – see kind of how fragile it is. Well, how I agree. I think necessary. I see it as a fragile treasure that must be preserved, and mm-hmm. then that's, that's and our mission. to bring it back to the point I was making about all this in the first place, I think the best way to do that this is history. to know history, to know that there was just a kind of laissez-faire slave trade that no one really thought like negatively about. Like, yeah. It's both heroic and unbelievably depressing that someone like, I don't know, Benjamin Rush could be a founding father who was the founding of the anti-slave foundation of America. Right. Right, Yeah. Like why is that guy a hero? (laughs) But he is right. So it's both heroic and depressing. Same with Wilberforce. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think it's just a, we can slide back so easily into so many things if we don't understand what we're capable of. And history is the treasure that lets us know what we're capable of. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yep. And so that's my pitch of why History is such an incredibly crucial discipline for a kind of cosmopolitan person to kind of at least have a tangential knowledge of, you know, in broad strokes at least. This is a narrative point in the story, but I thought the imagery of the buildings after the people were gone were beautiful. They were both like so descriptive but haunting at the same time. I don't know. Have you ever been to – have you ever experienced a city – or a town, or like a place that's urban but without people, hmm. because I—I I don't think I—I I have a couple times. But the most stark time that I remember, it was—it uh, was in South Korea, in the city of Gwangju, and it—I was out drinking with a couple buddies, three or four of us, and we were walking home from the bar, and it would been—it had been a late night, so it was like four, four thirty in the morning. And it was a kind of a windy night, so it was like even less people out than normal that would be at four thirty in the morning. And I was like, you know, it's Korea, so it's buildings everywhere, and it's urban and it's populated. Oh, I see what you mean. But there is no people yeah. around. You see the the products of human, but, but with no well, people. New York. I did
1: last year. I, I was like four thirty-five in the morning, so like not even the garbage trucks were out yet. But like everyone had basically gone to bed. You are just walking down the middle of the. I, street. I don't know.
0: Like there is something darkly beautiful about it. And it was kinda of windy, so like po like um banners were floating yes, in the wind, yeah. the trees were moving, and there were street lights, but it wasn't too lit, but there were no cars, all the stores were closed, all the all the lights of the buildings were off, the wind was blowing, and it just was so hauntingly beautiful. And I feel like that I don't even know what that feeling is, but it was captured so well in this book, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that's like almost the prevailing emotion of this book yes is yeah that's true a haunting like a a demon haunted world i guess right
0: all right so zan x-a-n is the warden of england and there's a line early in the book talking about his leadership style zan had always known the wisdom of giving choice in matters where choice was unimportant <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I made the note of the psychological catharsis of choice, but with no stakes. Kind of related to what we're talking about: how half-solving a not-real problem that isn't the true fountainhead of the problem makes you feel good, and you don't really have to put too much on the line. Yeah, similar. There's like a satisfaction people get out of making a choice, even if the stakes are non-existent, as long as it's their choice.
1: Yeah. Which restaurant do you want to go to? This one or this one? Well, it's all you, you've created an economy. Well,
0: and he, okay. Here's an interesting aspect of it. I actually do this with kids all the time at work. So I think there's something paternal about it. Right? Like, okay, I say to the kids, okay, you can either eat your snack now or you don't get a snack. That's your choice. (laughs) Right? Right. Well, maybe that's not a great example because that's like a a not real choice. But it'd be like, okay, so today, if there are seven parks on possibility, right. I'll narrow it down to two. It's like, okay, oh, we need to go to this park or this park. They choose, but you've already, but already, but I've already, but I've already yeah. like really yeah. narrowed <laughs> down the choices, kind of thing, to being two parks that I want to go to, yeah. or, right, right, you know, or easier for the day, or more congen- uh, congenital to our to our plan, more in line with our plan <laughs> of the day, <laughs> more compatible. So I guess. I would just raise the idea and we don't have to go into depth about it here because maybe you'd want to think about it more, but this again gets a little bit more to things like leadership. And I actually don't, I don't love this idea because I feel like if I'm an underling, (laughs) if Dwight Schrute was talking about it, (laughs) I feel like I'm actually really good at sniffing out paternalism in people who are my superiors and that really frustrates me when you're when people are when when i when too. i realize oh it's my choice but really you've guided like, yes i'm aware of the other five parks we're not going to yeah. when i choose these two but so but,
1: but okay but maybe leadership is really just about that which is decision making right and maybe what leadership is 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 less about the manipulation of taking those other five choices away mm. but realizing that people could be paralyzed by choice like if, analysis paralysis right
0: yeah but don't like if you give okay. kids,
1: if you gave your kid or the kids at work seven Parks to choose from, right? And then three wanted to go to one park, and two wanted to go to the other. Suddenly, you have a problem, right? Yeah, no I guess one's happy. so. There's less happiness. It
0: depends know. on my patience on the day because if I have infinite patience, I can have I can sit around for forty five minutes and, and watch the, watch the debate about them. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. So maybe it's a resource issue. Well, I think it's it is like a timeline, <laughs> yeah, and a, a time
1: resource issue, emotional energy level. Like if you're constantly giving your underlings the significant choices, yeah, but sometimes there's no the progress.
0: whole. The premise of making people feel like they have a choice only works if they don't realize that you're giving them the feeling like they have a choice. Right. Like it still has to be, I think there's like a categorical line that if they realize beyond that line, it it doesn't serve its function. You can still do it, but, but it doesn't it, serve its function it, for the it has, person. It hasn't got its value anymore. Who, yeah, you know. who, for the person who realizes that and i don't have an answer for any of this other than i feel like i have a good attenuation to those things in my own life when that happens to me but that might just be a youth thing yeah but there's nothing but is there a third path out of that is what i would leave as a thought because that's kind of my i like transcendence more than opposition right, right. like i like what's the what's the third option here so something to think about something to yeah, think about i will think about that so anyway, obviously we didn't talk very much about the existential <laughs> dread and fear of the world of children we we if you if you're listening to this before the movie one we really go into that and in the movie conversation we have about children and men but yeah i was I both liked the book and was a little bit not disappointed that would be the right wrong word but kind of weirdly Maybe caught thrown off, off thrown or... off by how different it was and like that's yeah. an expectation I had kind of thing right i it just could be the because of the bias, but I like the movie more. I think you said you like the yeah, book more. I like the book more. more, yeah. And that maybe but I've is, almost always liked the book more. Yeah, but maybe that's why we have good conversations about these that's things. That's true. <laughs> or <laughs> at least... Different enough and fair. yet similar. I'll, good conversations for each other. Yeah. We enjoy it. We I'll, enjoy it. Uh, I'll we'll not let the cast audience any, decide. Yeah, <laughs> you, you guys... I won't, I won't force you into choosing which one you like. You can make up your own goddamn minds. <laughs>
1: I'm perfect. You're not giving them a false choice. <laughs> no,
0: I'm giving them the uh, ex- existential burden of deciding for themselves how much they hate us. <laughs> anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name's Luke Mason. My name's David Parker. Thank you, and have a good day. Have a good one, guys.